welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Well, let's go into the Word of God, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time in a passage that I opened up to you two weeks ago. That's 1 John chapter 2. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the nature of loving the world and uh, the battle we have with these attractors from the world. So as you stand, I'm going to read two passages, and I hope I don't catch the people in the back off guard. We're going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, which is what we touched on last time. And I'm going to, to teach again referring to that, and I'm going to use a companion passage to bring you some insights on that battle. And that pat companion passage is Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, which talks about the hidden lure that draws us into the world, a hidden lure within us that the Bible gives us an ability to conquer. So here with me, the Word of God. First of all, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, or through 17. John writes to these believers, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, Paul writing to a different collection of believers in an earlier time. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a text. What a promise. Oh, there's much here for us. Let us hear from him in great detail. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So you might be asking, what's the connection? I'll show that to you. As we uh, think about what John says about the world, there are, uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, there are three hooks that the world uses to continually draw us back into its influence. He talks about the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh rather, the lust of the eyes, and I prefer the translation of the third, the boastful pride of life. And uh, we talked about the fact that those three things represent constant uh, attractions from the world. They were the way we lived before meeting Christ. And uh, they're the way you find your security and significance without the Lord. And that's all we're left with in the world if we don't have a living relationship with Jesus. And we, we can never have enough of those three things. And I use three words to describe them. The lust of the flesh has to do with the drives for pleasure. And it can be anything from out-of-bound sexual activity to to shopaholism, <laughs> to use a strange but real example, or any addictions that create sensations. And so the word I used for that was sensation, feeling good in a world of pain. And addictions are often driven by this particular hook. And then there was the lust of the eyes, and I talked about that with another word, not sensation, but possession, to have what we see others having that we don't have. And it can be tangible like a possession, a car in a driveway, or it can be intangible like a position or a, uh, an experience or what have you. So sensation or possession. And then the third, the boastful pride of life, 
I think more has to do, yes, with what we have, but it has to do with comparison to others that allows us to boast that we have more or we are greater than other people. And I used the word last time of position for that one. And so often the first two are what we gain the most of so we can have the last one. We, we have more a sensation and we gain more possession so we can say and feel we have a greater position. And that keeps us from the insecurities that drive us without Jesus. So that's what I taught you were the three hooks of the world. And, and uh I want to go back to that and I want to talk about what I call the hidden driver or the hidden factor in why this is such a hard battle to consistently win. Let's face it, when we come to know Jesus, we know that all three of these directions are false and they don't satisfy, but we find ourselves being drawn into them all through our adult lives. In some ways, addiction drives it, but there are other things in us that just make it really hard to win win the battle against these hooks. It feels like it almost makes too much sense to live for these things, and it's so much harder to trust God. Now, one of the drivers in my life that over time has led me at different points in my Christian life to be uh, attracted to these things and maybe even captured in certain places in my life by one or more of these three things, I, I came to discover it was driven by fear. The fear that walking with God was not going to be sufficient to satisfy me or take care of me, and so I was driven to go back into my old places of dependency, the things that I depended on before meeting Christ, and I was tempted by the enemy to go back into those parts of my life because they had always, I thought, worked for me. I, I felt it different, and, and I, I, I thought that they, they worked in, in a different way than faith did. And so fear would drive me, before I knew it, into, uh, into things about possessing stuff, for example, that I knew was unhealthy, but I almost felt driven to it. And the thing that was driving me was the fear that trusting God was not going to be enough and that I still had to have these things. Maybe in an honest moment you can relate to me. Or am I the only sinner in the room? Okay. Those of you that are laughing can stay. Everybody else, get out of here. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We're saved, but we're only progressively sanctified. Now, fear is an issue of trust, but then I looked farther in my life as I took these things before the Lord, and I discovered that fear manifested itself through worry, anxiety. If I trust God, will he come through? Or if I don't, what will my life be like? And so I was driven back into those things in the world because my fear gave birth to worry. Now, worry is a very difficult thing to defeat in life. I found, and I still find as I battle worry in my life, that it is a natural problem that, that only succumbs to a supernatural solution. And it's something that we overcome by faith. And I can think of no greater text that gives us a pattern to confront fear and worry than Philippians 4. It's a familiar text to us. I've taught it to you at times in the past. But as I was going through challenges in my life afresh over worry and over fear and, and, and just thinking about this dynamic and how it drives us to go back into the arms of the world, I wanted to join these passages together. And so we're going to look at this supernatural solution in Philippians 4 to the natural problem of worry, which reveals fear, which drives us back into our old patterns. That's the plan of the preaching today. Now, um, when it comes to talking about worry, um, I will tell you up front that that is a classic weakness in my life classic. Uh, a lot of times people think that, that pastors are all the time the way they look when they preach, the way they sound when they preach, the way they think when they preach, the way they act when they preach. And people look at me sometimes, and I've always believed that preaching should be purposeful and powerful. 
I was taught in seminary and criticized by, 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 by people saying I was too direct, too passionate. And uh, you know what? I, I read through the Bible, and when I came to the word preach, the Greek word meant preach. <laughs> That's my literal translation. Hey, if God says it, and it's supernaturally true, you're going to get it delivered and and so I preach and teach strongly but and so people think I'm naturally strong like that all the time I'm not I'm just like you I'm declaring what I hope to live into but I struggle just like everyone else and one of my great struggle points is worry it was funny uh, years ago I was sitting with with Claire I think one of my daughters and and uh, just out of the blue I said Claire just name one thing that daddy doesn't do too well and of course, that's an overwhelming thing to ask a teenager, because <laughs> she probably already had a list. But anyway, she paused for a moment, and then she said, golf? <laughs> Which really hurt, because um, that's so true. Uh, I did golf for a while, but then my friends had an intervention, and uh, they took away my clubs and said, we saw the last time you played, you became a danger to yourself and others. So <laughs> anyway. And I said, yeah, honey, you're right. But no, I mean, seriously. And she said, well, what do you think your worry, your, your problem is? And I just gave it away. What do you think is something you don't do well? And I said, dad doesn't do well with worry. And she said, oh, yeah. Dad, if anybody needs to sign up for Warrior, Warriors Anonymous, it's you. Uh, that's part of my past. It's a part of the package. And uh, it's part of the, the, the parenting environment I live. There's all kinds of human pathways or reasons for that to be true. And, and uh, it's a terrible tendency. And the people laugh at worry and don't think it's that big a deal. But oh, oh, actually it is. Because worry is really a manifestation of fear and unbelief. And that's what the Christian needs to remember. It's not just a personality quirk. It's a personal position that you have about how you're handling life. And the grounds of it are fear instead of trust in God. And, and yet, evangelicals, we look at that, and even though the Bible actually says it's not obedience to God to worry, we give ourselves what I would call permission for obsession. Evangelicals don't talk about these sins of the, of the mind, and we, we give ourselves, I guess I would call it an evangelical exception over it. There, there's, there's sins, and then there's sins. There's big problems, and then there's little problems, and... And yet, if you don't get a handle on it, I'm learning that if you don't learn to battle worry in the everyday things in life, you will be unequipped when a, an unusual thing in life uh, comes your way. And, and it's, it's really rough to learn what you needed to learn about worry and trusting God when a crisis comes. You've got a, your learning curve is like that. But as God brings difficulties into your everyday life, you can learn to trust him more and worry less in the everyday so that when the unusual comes, you're going to have a pattern that you're building. More on that later. So whether you think this is a big issue tonight, I think it's a, it's a red light on a dashboard that shows that behind worry is fear and behind fear is unbelief. Now, when I come to this, that's what drives me into the arms of the world again. I mean, sometimes people just don't want to feel worry and anxiety, and so they slip back into addictions, whether it's, it's pills or, or whatever. And, and, and so much of the driver for that is what I'm talking about. Now, Philippians 4 is a wonderful passage. It's familiar to so many. Uh, it, it births its truth every time you go into it. And uh, it's easy to preach because if you look at the structure of the passage, there are four commands in it that lead to the fulfillment of one promise. The first command in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, it's pivotal, it's foundational, so he repeats himself. Second command is let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. Third command is do not be anxious about anything. And so, so that's the, the third command. And the fourth is, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So there's the four commands. That's how I'll structure it and teach it. And then the promise that you will experience if you're living out the first, the four commands of verses four to six is in verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you want to get to verse seven? I do. But everybody thinks God just zaps them with peace. God, would they just, oh Lord, give me peace. Ever pray that prayer? 
Oh, yeah. But God says peace comes through the process of obeying the commandments and and dealing with things in the way that the first three verses tell us about. Peace isn't some kind of robotic zapped emotion or kind of a divine drug. No, it's a state of mind that you come to as you trust the Lord. So what I'm going to do is I'll teach this in an if-then way, and I do this a lot when I preach. And I'm going to take each command and turn it into a principle and show you that if you can begin to follow each of these commands and learn to, to put them into practice, then you're going to live more into the promise. So there'll be four if you cans and then one then you can. That's how we're going to put it together. So let's take a look at this. If you can, number one, learn to rejoice more deeply in Jesus. Remember, all of this is tied to, to, to not falling back into the world, too, and I'll try and connect the two passages each time as I move through or, or half, halfway through. So the first principle is learn to rejoice more deeply in Jesus. It's obvious. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's foundational. It's the thing you've got to do more than anything. It's a, it puts you in a state of mind. Now, rejoicing, by the way, is not necessarily emotional either. It is standing on the truth of what we believe about God no matter what. Sometimes it leads to the emotional experience of joy, but it is a standing in the mind. Now, why were the Philippians needing this advice from Paul? Remember, Philippians is written to the Philippians, and it was written to a particular church in Asia, pardon me, in, in, in where Greece is today. It was the first church that Paul planted in, in, in regional Europe, in, in the mainland, so to speak. And it was a beautiful ministry, but it was troubled from the start by the world. It was persecuted from the start. That's the one where Paul went, began to lead people to Christ. People came to the Lord, and it it brought such a backlash from the community that within a few weeks, Paul was jailed along with Silas in the jail in the middle of the town. And and, uh, God uh, responds to their praise and prayer as these young believers are praying for their pastor who's been locked up in jail and after a few weeks of building the church and God answers with an earthquake. Remember the story? Boom! Earthquake comes, the doors fly open, the jailer gets saved. It's a wonderful moment. And yet, uh, Paul is, has his life at risk and, and the city fathers throw him out of town basically and, and Paul moves on. So here's a church that gets birthed by the apostle, but after only a few weeks, they have no pastor. Luke may have been able to stay for a little while and build them up in, their, in the word and show them what basic discipleship was. But after that, they were on their own. And so they had laymen come and rise up to the point of elder and teacher. And uh, they prospered, but were persecuted for 10 years. Paul saw him once at that time. He made a very quick visit through town, wasn't able to stay long. And now Paul is in jail in Rome. It's been 10 years of time. That little church is still going, but a thousand miles away, Paul has been jailed in Rome unjustly again. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed or not. He's in jail. The Philippians hear about this. They send their primary elder, whom they love, the guy named Epaphroditus, and they send him with a financial gift all the way across Europe, back down to, uh, up, up from Philippi, rather, to Rome. He finds Paul in prison, brings him the gift, and blesses Paul's heart. Then he immediately falls ill and almost dies. So this church is going through trouble long distance. Its pastor now is, is under the threat of death. But then persecution rises and false teachers arrive in the church while their elder is gone and they're really under it. So all of this is reported back to Paul and basically what I'm trying to tell you is the people in that church had a lot to worry about. They, they, had, they, they had all this persecution coming. The deception was going on in their church. Their pastor might not make it back home. It was a tough time. Now Paul gives Epaphroditus this letter and sends him back with it. Epaphroditus had healed enough to go back. And this letter was meant to encourage the church. So they definitely needed to rejoice in Jesus is the point. And it's a command that they would do that. Now Paul doesn't write to them and say, listen guys, I'm sure things are going to start looking up. 
Don't be too bummed out because I'm sure the persecution will die down. These false teachers will just head on to another city. Your financial situation will improve. Things are going to get better. Just, you know, cheer up. Things will look up. That's not where peace comes from. Peace is not solution-driven. It's Savior-based. He says, rejoice in what? In the, are you with me? The Lord. Always. That means regardless of the situation, regardless of whether things are bad or worse, regardless of whether your prayers are being answered or not, regardless of whether persecution arrives or doesn't, regardless of whether economics are great or bad, regardless of about anything, always means it's not situationally driven. It's not solution driven. It's savior based. You're rejoicing in the Lord, in who he is, in, in what the promises are about the Lord Jesus. He, re, he calls them to rejoice more deeply in Jesus. I'll say it again. Emotional peace is not solution-driven. It's Savior-based. So important. Jesus mentioned this in John chapter 16 and verse 33 to the disciples a generation before this when they were sitting with him in the upper room as he was telling them, listen, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise, but then I'm going to leave you. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Not in solutions. In fact, things are going to darken. In the world, you, on occasion, if you just have tremendously bad luck, may experience tribulation. that's That's the expanded perversion translation. No. In the world, what's your Bible say? You will have tribulation. I've taken that to heart in recent years when things have troubled, become troublesome in my life, thinking, what did I do wrong? Answer, I'm living in the world. I'm going to have tribulation. It's going to be a frequent occurrence in my life, especially if I live for Jesus. But then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, how can we say he's overcome the world if we have trouble as Christians? Isn't he supposed to overcome every problem and and block every problem and and, and every opposition, every point of suffering? He doesn't, no. Well, how has he overcome it then? Because now he's enough for you to get through it. Now he's enough for you to stand in power and strength against it and still have joy in Jesus Christ. He is enough now to take you through the tribulation and then in the future he will overcome this whole sick system and put it to an end. He is enough now and he will finish his overcoming then. But it's such a sure thing that Jesus said it's like he's already done it. But in the world you will have tribulation, but he says, in me you will have peace. It's, it's savior-driven, not solution-driven. And that's a problem for us in the Western church. I could preach this message in most of the developing, suffering church around the world, and they could finish it for me. Because you see, he's the only one they can put trust in because they have nothing else. Some of you who've been overseas and ministered in different cultures know what I'm talking about. But Americans, we have a problem. We are the history's greatest solution seekers because we still have so much option in our American culture to solve our problems on our own. Is that not true? Solve our economic problems on our own. Solve our our career problems by making adjustments or moving on our own. Solving all kinds of things. Solving our physical illness problems based by all the options available. We we have countless uh, numbers of options that we can use in our own strength. We really don't need the Lord. Well, believers just about everywhere else don't have any of that stuff. But when you go visit them, they are living at a higher level of joy than we are. I'm telling you. Because you see, all the human options are nothing compared to what Jesus gives you when you trust him in the midst of trouble. Some time ago I wrote in my journal about the idea that Christians constantly seek more solutions. They're not satisfied with their Bible and their walk. They're always looking for a new spiritual secret. Isn't this true? American Christians. 
We're always looking for some kind of new miracle or some kind of hidden principle that we can find in the latest book at the books, Bible bookstore or we can head to some service and find that people have encountered God in some newly revealed way. And now, of course, the great addiction is for apostolic and prophetic words that add to the Bible. I was thinking about all that, and this is what I wrote some time ago in my journal in terms of what I've found. Joe, with Christianity, there are no secrets. There are no hidden answers. There are no undiscovered principles, and there are no more prophetic words. There were before the Bible was finished, but they're done now. No secrets yet to be written in Christian books. No groundbreaking conferences or new worship experiences yet to come. No unseen interpretations that make all of this any better. No, the normal clear truth that we've had in the Bible for 2,000 years is the real stuff and the adequate stuff. It may not work in my life as well as I might demand until God shows me differently, but it is enough because he is enough always. What you know and could read for yourself in this book is all you need to know. He tells you countlessly in the New Testament that this is true. Now that may this be disappointing to you because in this world you want total relief. Well, that comes later. For now, you need to walk by faith. You don't know him enough. You don't know what he's already said enough. And you don't cast your trust on him enough. That's your only problem. Those are tough words to me. Maybe you'll find some understanding in them. I need to learn to rejoice, number one, more deeply in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the second command, which is also, I put it into a principle. I also need to learn to release more of my demands on others. Back to Philippians 4, next verse. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. By the way, let me go back to one. When I said that this is a key behind why the world draws us, rejoicing is in, in, in Jesus replaces my demand to always feel good in my life. And what drives me into the lust of the flesh? Addictions, sensations. It, what drives me is this desire not to feel pain in a painful world. Well, God says, listen, the pain is going to be there, but I will be enough through the pain. And, and so it's, it's why one of the hooks to the world is so strong. So I just want to point that out. There's the connection between the two battles. Second, learn to release more of your demands on others. Now go to verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. How does that fit in? Well, so what reasonableness meant an attitude toward others to where you don't have to get your own way. The Greek word meant being humble and giving up what you actually do. So it, it's an attitude of a non-demanding spirit over what others would do for you or do to you. And it was the total opposite of Roman culture. Roman culture was a get yours, get it now culture. There was no, in fact, the Greeks used the word agape for unconditional love just because you want to love someone out of, out of the, because you want to be committed to them. The Greeks and Romans virtually never used that word. It was the Christians that put that word into the, into the language, in the vernacular. Romans didn't love one another with that kind of commitment. It was all about them. Gee, does that sound familiar? And he says, instead of making it about you, make it about others. Give up even what you're due and let people know it. It says, let your reasonableness be known. And that's an interesting version in the Greek. Gnosko, it means to know by experience. Let them see this in your life to where they come to their own conclusion. Wow, this woman is, is unique. She's not demanding. She's here to find out how she can give, how she can minister, how she can serve. And, and that was such a radical thing in that culture. It's a radical thing in our society today. It's releasing more of your demands on others. Now, it, it, now, why is this a connector to the lust of the eyes? Well, because the lust of the eyes is basically built on wanting to have what somebody else already has. 
It's making an unconscious demand that what they have, you get. Either by taking or structuring your whole life so you can compare to them. It's putting you in the middle again, isn't it? I know, because I've done it and do it. But what if you gave up all that and just said, Lord, what you have for me is, is, is what I want to be content with. I don't want to let the world draw me into that rat race again. You say, well, there are needs in my life and there are things that I wish that God would give me that he doesn't and, and it's hard for me to have peace about that. Well, he says the, the, the way you can come to greater peace is when you realize the last part of verse five, the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? Well, there's a big debate about what this means because it could, it could be translated, he's near. And the idea was, was it, does that mean he's near in time or near in space? Some people think it means he's near in time in the sense that, hey, he's almost here. He's coming back soon. I believe that, don't you? Amen. So it could be near in time, like don't get caught up in all these things because the Lord's coming before you know it. Live for him. I think that that's true. But it also could mean near in space that he's with you right now where you are. The whole nature of who he is is with you. In fact, the Bible says he is in you, but his presence is also with you as you worship and as you bring your needs before him and as you learn to just fellowship with him. I kind of tend to the second one. He's saying, listen, why get, get wrapped up in all these things that you think you do and the way you think people should treat you when you have everything in his presence? He's with you. Why do you need anything from anybody else? Go back to Psalm 16, and you can see how David built this into his life. He said, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Take that phrase and take it home for a week and meditate on it. You have no good apart from who he is. He's already every good thing you need. He's already every good thing that you were designed to fellowship with. And, and, and so you don't need to drive worship into your life more than this dissatisfaction with how somebody may treat you or look at you and, and, and wanting to, to just retaliate against that by having what they have. He goes on in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. <laughs> He's near. He, he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. Nothing's going to worry me out of worship. You see, it, it's, it's just that sense of the nearness of God. You know, I thought when COVID hit that the church of Jesus Christ would enter into a great opportunity to make him matter more and be driven more into worship. But we really didn't see it. We saw all kinds of upset over how people were handling it, how people were reacting to it, what was happening to our lives in the normal and the physical. It was such a missed opportunity to live out this text and live out Psalm 16. Although I am seeing some, how I, what I call it, delayed reaction of looking to the Lord more in life. He's always about that. Now, let's go to the third, and I know I'm going to have to hurry here. Thirdly, if you can learn to obsess less about everything. I love this. He says, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Don't you love the totality of Paul? He says, do not be anxious for the big life-threatening stuff. But the little things, you can let them drive you crazy. No, he doesn't. Anything. And the Greek says, stop being anxious. I love that. So he admits how frail we are. He says, stop being anxious and don't let anxiety govern you about anything. I love how the play on words. He says, stop, don't be anxious about anything in verse 6, but then in everything pray. See that? How he does that? I just love Paul. Now, what's anxiety? You say, well, pastor, are you saying to just kind of live like a zombie and not care about anything? No, it's, it's, no, you have to care about things in life. You have to care about getting paid. You have to care about your physical life. You have to care about illness. You have to care about all these things. But it's basically normal concern gone wild to where you're trying to make sure everything in your life works and nothing hurts and you're on constant alert mode. The Greek word was merimnao and it meant to be pulled in multiple directions. 
pulled in multiple directions. It's used in Luke 10 when, remember, Jesus came to Martha and Mary's house. And uh, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus because she knew the Lord was at hand. And she just took everything in her life and focused it on him. You remember the story? She was in the living room listening to Pastor Jesus. Where was Martha? In the kitchen. Martha was in the kitchen and she was putting on the greatest dinner Jesus would ever have. So she thought. He's given out the word of life, the food, the bread of life in the next room. That's where she should have been. She's all running around with the bread of man. And Martha, I can just see her. You know, there's a, there's a pot boiling over here, over here, and then there's a timer. And I'm, well, I don't know if they had those. Maybe they had a little slave saying, beep, beep. I don't know. The microwave's tinging here, and the pot's boiling there, and something's sliding off the island over there, and, and somebody comes in and says, we, we couldn't find this at the store, so you'll have to change the recipe, and she's doing this. He's doing this. Merimnao, pulled from many directions by real things. That's real life, isn't it? And now, thanks to the, the dawning of the internet and media, you can now be merimnao all night long. When your phone pops off and, and whatever, you can never escape from your office now. If you have clients, good Lord, you have house guests. It's just nuts. And you can you obsess about it and be all driven about it. And he says, hey, listen, even things like that, don't give even all those things to the Lord. Don't... Uh, Obsess about these things. Stop doing it. It's just an interesting thing. And, and you know, Jesus talked about it in Matthew. And verse 31 of chapter 6. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that don't know him, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. I always wonder what that means. My latest take on it is seeking first the kingdom of God is trying to see what God is doing in my situation. How is he working his kingdom work in my pay problem or my family tension or whatever pot's boiling? How is the kingdom of God being worked out here? How can I join God in what he's doing even though it's not what I want? And his righteousness has to do with reflecting Jesus in that situation. How can I reflect the Lord in this problem, in this need, in this threat? You seek first the kingdom of God, what I'm doing in the situation, and my righteousness. Be like me in the midst of it, and like my son, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know what? There's a problem and a promise in that verse. The problem is you're going to have trouble every day. You look at that. Isn't that, that's, that's the promise. That's the problem rather. But the promise is God's going to monitor the level of that problem. It'll be sufficient in his plan. It's going to be boxed for that day. But the impression is that he'll be there with you. He'll still do his kingdom work and you can still reflect his son and it's going to be okay. Wow. Learn to obsess less about everything. You know, just get into the front room and come under the teaching of the master and he's where we need to be. Here's the last one. Obsess less about everything and then finally learn to pray. By the way, the obsessing about everything I think tends to lead us into that third thing of, of the boastful pride of life. What's that? I said that was related to position and it was related to making sure nobody can basically take you out. I think one of the drives for position in my life, both in the marketplace and the ministry, has been out of a, out of a desire. When I want position, when I want attention, when I want to be better than other people, a lot of it's been driven by, by my fear of what other people could do to me if I'm not the best. 
or if I'm not admired, or if I'm not in power, or if I don't have a certain level of achievement. Because when you do that, you feel like you can control people more, and people are like boiling pots all around you. You never know who's going to want to do what to you or when. And so we are driven to, 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 to get into a boastful position because partly we're afraid if we're not in power, somebody else will be. Well, you know what? The Lord Jesus is in power. He really is. You don't have to get involved in all these situations. Just a thought. Finally, he says, learn to pray more about everything. So it's a, first, it's a positive command like the first one. Learn to pray more about everything. That's first verse 6. But in everything. So don't be anxious about anything. Look at the play on words. But in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's four words for prayer in there. You say, which one am I supposed to do? The answer would be yes. Four words for prayer. The word prayer there that leads it is kind of a general word and it had worship and adoration as part of it. So he's talking about what you could call worship-driven prayer, just exalting him. Supplication has to do with asking God for all your needs, the things that are challenging in your life where you, you need him to provide or guide or act. Thanksgiving, that's pretty obvious. Thanking God in advance for whatever he's going to do. And then finally, requests. Deomai is to make requests for others. That's intercession. That's praying about the needs in other people's lives. And you put them all together, and it's a fully involved life of prayer. I put it in this phrase. We need to learn to constantly converse with Christ about his greatness through worship, our needs through supplication, his wisdom and thanksgiving, and the, and the problems of others through requests. It's a full prayer life. And I've been guilty at times of imbalancing one over the other, and I'm learning that any time I'm praying is a good time. And over any aspect of this is God-glorifying prayer. Isn't that true? Now, some people might say, well, I mean, some of the things in my life are, the things that drive me crazy are kind of petty. They're small, and why would God really want to pay attention to my little life with my little work problems and my little end-of-the-month bill-paying worries? Why would God really be concerned? There's so little. Many years ago, there was a great expositor of the word called G. Campbell Morgan. I tell you, if you're going to be a pastor and a preacher, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? G. Campbell Morgan. And I'm told he had a deep kind of commanding English voice if I'm not mistaken and he preached a massive message one time in a church as a guest pastor and and they people came up afterward as they usually do and and uh after he preaches this noble message this impressive man it was in Philadelphia apparently according to this story and a little older lady kind of timidly came up to the front afterward and she said Dr. Morgan, do you think we should pray about the little things in our lives? And Dr. Morgan, in his characteristically British manner, said, Madam, can you mention anything in your life that is big to God? <laughs> think about that for a minute. Can you mention anything in your life that is big to God? Even the big things to you, are they big to God? No, everything is little to God. So how can you say, should I pray about the little things, Lord? Or just the big things? Everything in your little life, even the biggest things in your little life, it's all little to God. And yet, the Bible says here, God says, I want you to bring everything to me. Oh, you come with everything. And I don't want you worried about anything. You come into my presence. I don't care if it's so small you're embarrassed to tell somebody you struggle with it. There's no embarrassment with me, the Lord says. I don't care if you struggle with it every day. Bring it to me. I want to be with you in it. Oh, that's good stuff. Well, let me take you back then. Let me, let me show you my reasoning here. Kind of help you understand what we're talking about. If you can, number one, learn to rejoice more deeply in Jesus 
and release more of your demands on others and obsess less about everything and learn to pray more about everything. Then, if you follow those commands, then you can live in the final promise, and here we wrap it up. And then, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will, there's the promise, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Here's the, the, the last phrase. You can then live more in his peace in a fallen world. Notice it is not the peace of having everything solved. It is the peace of God. It doesn't come from everything getting worked out or changing. It comes from God. And it says it will guard your hearts. That's amazing. You probably heard this preached and probably heard me preach it, that that was a Greek word and, a Roman, and used in Roman society to talk about setting sentries around a building to guard it. And he's basically saying in some amazing way, God's peace will stand like a sentry around your soul. So in whatever situation is troubling you, when worry tries to break in, the centuries of God's peace will say, sorry, this has been given over by him to God. Sorry, this has been taken over to the Lord of the universe. Step back. It's a way in which our souls are guarded by the decisions of faith that we make. And it's not an emotion. It's a state of mind and of standing by faith. Now look what it says about what that's going to be like. It surpasses all understanding. The Greek word means being above or beyond explaining. Doesn't mean you're not the one who does, doesn't understand it. You, you don't understand it, but others don't understand it either. So it's beyond your understanding. And I'm telling you, if you've walked with the Lord for a while and he's led you into some unbelievable troubles at times, when you look back on it now, don't have to answer, but you tell me, have you had moments or, or seasons in your life of great trouble, but, but when you decided to take it to the Lord, you now look back on it and you see that he was with you through it and there was a state of mind an ability to endure that you could later describe as the presence of God I have I think that's part of where it was even beyond your understanding at the time now looking back you say I don't know how we got through it you ever have that I don't know how they got through it either I know he got through it with you for you it's not necessarily an emotion, it's an ability, it's a state of mind by faith that, that carried you through. And Not only was it beyond your understanding, it was beyond people's understanding around you. Beyond explaining. Now Jesus promised this to the church on that night when he promised it to the disciples in John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave with you. It wasn't an emotion he was leaving. It was a place of life. My peace I give to you, not in situations, but in the Savior. Now look at this. Not as the world gives do I give to you. How does the world gain its peace? In scattered moments, usually by pursuing those three directions I taught you about in 1 John, until they don't work anymore, which is pretty fast. And then the world's out of peace again. Or pursues it artificially through addiction or drugs or experiences or whatever. Or achievements that end up hollow. Or warfare in relationships where they win the battle and lose the war. Or whatever it is. And they're back down again. He says, oh, I don't give you peace like the world does. And the world will never understand it. The world can't understand why Christians can persevere in suffering because it's not them doing it, it's the Lord through you. So because you have that promise, he said, let not your hearts be troubled tonight or any night, and neither let them be afraid. Oh, what a master. It's a peace that can be only supernaturally explained. 
The world can't give it. Solutions can't offer it. Changes in your situation won't give it. Now, Paul could write all this to these people because he'd actually shown it to them. Remember I said he was in jail. Acts chapter 16. After just a few weeks of preaching and developing these young believers, he was thrown in prison, and it looked like curtains for Paul and Silas. But Acts 16.25 says, Along about midnight, Paul and Silas were, were praying and singing hymns to God. They were in peace and in chains. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to a peace that surpassed all understanding, a peace the world could not give. I think somebody else was listening. He was a jailer down the hall. And when the earthquake came, I think he was already halfway to being saved because before the earthquake came, he was listening to somebody singing at midnight. And the Spirit of God was showing him a peace that passed understanding, and he was being drawn to Christ. I think the earthquake was just the period on the sentence of salvation for that old boy. Because what did he do when he came a running in? He says, what must I do to be saved? I think God brought suffering into Paul's life so that Paul could have that peace that surpasses all understanding that's basically singing at midnight. And the jailer heard it. Why has he brought suffering into your life? Why has he brought a situation where you feel jailed and hopeless? Well, don't be surprised if there's somebody in your world, somebody you may not even know is watching who needs to see you singing at midnight. Not sighing, but singing. So the question is, no matter what you go through, believer, will you learn to pass on the midnight song? Maybe it's illness that you struggle with. You've been burdened with it and there aren't many solutions. And by the way, illness can be physical or psychological. Maybe it's job injustice. Maybe it's unbelievable life and financial pressures that you can't get out of and you know are uncertain for you. Maybe it's persecution in your workplace or your family because you just can't not stand for Jesus. Maybe it's the attack of a child or a grandchild or a great-grandchild that used to live for Jesus and now for some unbelievable reason hates Jesus and hates you and you're worrying about how to carry it. There are lots of reasons midnight comes, but he can be our peace at midnight and we can sing his presence.